So good morning again. As always, it's a pleasure and a privilege to open God's inspired, infallible Word with all of you. May God Himself, by His Holy Spirit, both inform and transform us today by His mercy and grace that flows to us from the cross at Calvary. This morning we dive back into the Gospel according to Matthew. Last time we were in Matthew, Pastor Scott closed out chapter 13, talking about how the Lord Jesus was rejected by those in his hometown of Nazareth. It turns out that the local carpenter's son wasn't exactly the kind of Messiah that those in his hometown were expecting. And because of the unbelief of his neighbors in Nazareth, Jesus did not do many miracles there. Pastor Scott also reminded us that the gospel according to Matthew has a rhythm. That is, along with a four-chapter introduction and a brief conclusion, which we call the Great Commission, this gospel account comes to us in five sections. Five sections of long discourse followed by narrative. So here we are then in this third section of the gospel according to Matthew. The long discourse, of course, was the parables of the kingdom, which constitute the bulk of chapter 13. Thus, this morning in chapter 14, we find ourselves in the third narrative section of Matthew. And before we begin to look at Matthew chapter 14, if you'd like to turn there, let me say one more thing about the structure of Matthew's gospel, which I alluded to in my last sermon. It turns out that the gospel according to Matthew can also be analyzed according to what's called a chiastic structure. That is, Matthew's gospel can be seen as a chiasm, a mountain-like structure, with the kingdom parables of chapter 13 at the center, at the peak of the mountain. We've discussed chiasms previously, mainly during our Wednesday evening studies, but I have provided a simple illustration in the bulletin this morning just to give you a sense of what I mean. So it's there underneath your order of worship. You see there the gospel according to Matthew that looks like a mountain. At the base on the left side of the mountain is the genealogy uh, of Jesus in chapter 1, and the base on the right side of the mountain, that is where we're heading... At the base on the right is the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And in the middle, at the peak of the mountain, which is the most important part of the chiasm, it's the most important part of the mountain, remember, right, that at the, at the peak of the mountain are the kingdom parables. So what's the point? Well, there are two. I quickly want to reiterate something we've been saying for some time, and that is, if we don't understand what the kingdom of heaven is, then we will get lots of other things wrong. So the importance of those parables in Matthew chapter 13, understanding what they're saying, understanding what Jesus is teaching about the nature of the kingdom, simply cannot be overstated. Matthew is in fact signaling this to us. By putting these kingdom parables right in the middle of his gospel account. My second point is this. Today, this morning, with Matthew chapter 14, we begin or continue our descent down the backside of the mountain. I hope you have your carabiners handy. Where we're headed, where Matthew is headed from here on out in this sermon series, where we are headed is where Jesus is headed. We're headed toward the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Great Commission. 
with a couple of important stops along the way to be sure. This morning we begin our approach to these magnanimous events in redemptive history. And frankly, I'm excited and I trust that you are as well. Uh, Scott and I were out on a run this past week and we agreed that it is going to be a wild ride. There are some awesome things that happen in the back half of the Gospel according to Matthew. And our descent has begun. Now the first four things apparently that must occur as we head down the backside of this mountain are one, Jesus has to be rejected by his hometown crowd. We saw this last time at the end of Matthew chapter 13. Two, John the Baptist has to die. That's the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14. Three, Jesus feeds the 5,000 men along with their accompanying women and children. Those are verses 13 through 21. And four, Jesus walks on the Sea of Galilee in verses 22 through 33. And we are going to address the latter three of these this morning. So please strap yourselves in. First, John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, has to die. Now... I'm only going to quickly touch on this event because I have previously preached on this topic. If you're interested in my previous sermon on these first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14, you can go to sermonaudio.com. You can find my sermon entitled, The Ministry of John the Baptist, which I preached on July 26, 2015, as part of our sermon series in the Gospel According to John. If you need me to email you a link, please Shoot me an email. The key takeaways from that sermon, please listen, that are relevant for us here this morning in Matthew chapter 14 are these. First, please note that John the Baptist does not die a Christian martyr's death, for example, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Instead, John the Baptist dies a very private death in a jail cell. John the Baptist dies a pathetic death because of a silly promise made by a silly king to a silly girl at a silly party. And John the Baptist dies a prophet's death at the hands of the wicked King Herod. Second, this is important. John the Baptist had to die before Jesus died because the old covenant is coming to an end and the new covenant in the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is coming. Don't look for any more prophets, brothers and sisters, for the last of God's old covenant prophets is dead. And the one true prophet of the new covenant has arrived on the scene. The point is this. One of the first stops on the way down the backside of this mountain, Matthew's mountain, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, is that the way has been opened for the new covenant because the last of the old covenant prophets has died. And again, you're all invited to go out onto the interweb and listen to that sermon. This morning, we hover instead over the rest of Matthew chapter 14. So let's look together first at the account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, beginning in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Let's look at it together. Matthew writes this, Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. 
And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Verse 17, But they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. Let's stop there for now. This particular story is interesting because it's one of the very few stories in the Gospel accounts that each of the four Gospels records. That is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have an account of Jesus feeding these 5,000 men plus the women and the children. And let's look together at the details for a moment. First, in verse 13, we see that Jesus, having heard about John's death, decides that he's going to withdraw by boat to a desolate place. We might even speculate here that Jesus withdraws to mourn the death of his cousin. And at some point, Mark and Luke tell us, Jesus' disciples meet up with him to tell him all they had done and taught. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So Jesus and his disciples are alone briefly in or near Bethsaida on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 9, verse 10. But the crowds follow, of course. And it seems from John's account that these crowds were not only following Jesus because of the signs that he was doing, John chapter 6, verse 2, but also the crowds were finding their way to Jerusalem as well to celebrate the Passover feast, John chapter 6, verse 4. And the Passover being near is key. Sit tight on that little nugget, I'll come back to that. So this mass of people traveling together on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, looking for Jesus and his disciples, find them. And Jesus, as he often does, he heals the sick, verse 14, and he also speaks to them about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 11. Nothing shocking yet, I assume. These are certainly things we have seen before in the gospel according to Matthew. But the day draws on and it becomes evening and it seems from John's account that Jesus initiates a discussion with the disciples. He asks Philip, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? John chapter 6 verse 5. And John provides some commentary at this point. Listen, John writes, quote, Jesus was saying this to Philip to test him because he, Jesus, knew what he was going to do. John chapter 6, verse 6. We can see their response to Jesus' question, can't we? Look with me at verse 15. The disciples' response to Jesus' question is, quote, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, Jesus, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And frankly, given the circumstances, naturally speaking, this seems like a reasonable response from the disciples. Would any of us have answered differently? 
Jesus, however, presses the issue with his disciples because he's about to reveal something to them. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus presses on his disciples and he says to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. In the Greek here, you need to know, there's an emphasis on you. Jesus says to his disciples, literally, you give them something to eat. And I imagine at this point, two things. One, a look of utter disbelief on the faces of Jesus' disciples. Two, a knowing grin on the face of Jesus. For he himself knew what he was going to do. What he was going to do, beloved, was blow his disciples' minds. Skip down with me to verse 22. Let's read the account of Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. Verse 22, immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Let's stop there for now. This is the second time, which I'm sure you've noted, second time that I've cut the narrative short because I want you to see what Jesus is doing. I mean, imagine for just a moment that you are one of the twelve. You are one of Jesus' closest disciples. First, you've got 10, 15,000 people standing all around you and Jesus says to you, you, give these some people something to eat. You and your measly five loaves of bread and your two fishes. And then that evening, you're out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, being battered by the waves, having been sent into the boat by Jesus himself. Verse 22, look at it. He, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. You're in this boat on the dangerous Sea of Galilee. Jesus himself having shoved you off the dock. You're in this boat. You're rocking and rolling. And here he comes. Here he comes. Towards you. He's not swimming. He's walking on the water. On the waves. Now just for a moment. Imagine you're there. In the boat. What are you thinking? If I may be so bold, I think you're thinking something like this. What, literally, in God's name, is going on? And I submit to you, that's exactly what Jesus wants right now. Because here in Matthew chapter 14... He's beginning to make who he is clearer and clearer. 
I mentioned earlier that John chapter 6 tells us that this crowd whom he fed is on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. Which, listen, this means that Jesus, at this point in time, has one year of ministry left before his crucifixion. Before he has hung on a Roman cross as a substitute for sinners. Brothers and sisters, understand, in Matthew chapter 14, time is short. And so everything that happens from here on out, that we are going to study together, everything that happens from here on out is strategic. Jesus wants his disciples to know and to see. And this includes us, beloved. Jesus wants his disciples to know and to see exactly who he is. That's what's happening on the backside of this mountain. Let's back up to the feeding of the 5,000. What's happening here? It's not actually hard to see, is it? Jesus is providing. Let's pick up in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 14. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. But they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. Verse 18, And he, Jesus said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the crowds to sit down, literally recline, on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets, and there were about five thousand men who ate besides women and children. Now, there are a dozen places that we could go to see what Jesus is doing here in the green grass. I'll come back to that in a moment. Moment to see what Jesus is doing here in the green grass of Bethsaida. But we could go back to Genesis 22, where God is first called by Abraham, Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord will provide. We could go back to Exodus and Yahweh's moving in the hearts of the Egyptians to provide gold and to provide gems and to provide linen to the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. We could go back to Exodus again and Yahweh's provision of manna, bread from heaven in the wilderness for his people Israel. We could go back to the time of Joshua and Yahweh's provision of a pagan prostitute. Say that five times fast. Yahweh's provision of a pagan prostitute, Rahab, who hid and encouraged the Israelite spies in Jericho. We could go back to the time of the judges and Yahweh patiently providing the Israelites with deliverer after deliverer. And we could go back to the time of the prophet Samuel and Yahweh's provision of a king for Israel, a man after God's own heart, David. We could go back to any of these and more to see how God, Yahweh, the God of the burning bush, the one true God of the universe provides. But we're going to look briefly not at the man King David, but at his words 
in Psalm 23, which were read earlier. You don't have to go there. Hear the verse two, first two verses again. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now here's something interesting. The Gospel writer Mark, which you heard earlier in Mark chapter 6, verse 39, he notes in his account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, Mark notes that Jesus, quote, commanded them all to sit down. Again, literally the word is to recline. To sit down by groups on the green grass. And here you might say, because I know all of you and you are critical thinkers and biblically knowledgeable, you might say, Brother Steve, come on. You just can't connect the word green from the Old Testament, from the 23rd Psalm, with the word green in the New Testament and start drawing conclusions. And that would be a fair comment. Except for one little thing. Mark is also the only gospel writer who records this in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So I submit to you that I or any commentator wasn't the first one to make this connection. Mark was. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus is Yahweh Ra'a, the God who provides. That's how the 23rd Psalm begins. He takes a mere five loaves and two fish, and with his divine power, he provides food enough? No. No. Not just food enough, but food more than enough for his disciples. And not only did they all eat and were satisfied, but they picked up what was left over, 12 baskets full. Matthew chapter 14, verse 20. And if you think that 12 baskets of leftovers is an accidental number, then friend, you are not paying attention. Think about it. Each of the 12 disciples is literally left standing there, holding a full basket of food when just an hour earlier they had nothing. Remember, the five loaves and the two fishes weren't even theirs. They came out of some kid's lunchbox. John chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus is Yahweh Ra'ah, the God who provides. He, Jesus, Yahweh in human flesh. He is our shepherd, and brothers and sisters, we shall never be in want. Psalm 23, verse 1. And let me just make a passing comment, providing a little contrast for Pastor Scott, providing a little contrast between this dinner party that Jesus hosts in the green grass of Bethsaida, and the vile, sensual dinner party thrown by Herod at the beginning of this chapter. Could they be any different? Which one do you prefer? 
A drunken orgy with the wealthy and powerful of the world? Or bread and fish with righteousness and peace among the saints? Could the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven be any clearer? Now, what about this walking on water thing? What's that all about? Let me make two points here, please. The first point is the same point that I just made. Jesus is making it clear who He is. He is Yahweh in human flesh. This time it's Matthew, not Mark, making the point. Please look with me. Chapter 14, verse 24. Matthew writes this. The boat was already many stadia away from the land. That means far. Being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. The Greek word for wind in verse 24 is animos. Animos. So the disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, being battered by the waves. They're rocking, they're rolling, because the wind is against them. And here comes Jesus, walking, in the Greek, peripateo, walking. Here comes Jesus, walking on the water. You don't have to go there, but please hear now Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping yourself with light as a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the waters. He sets up the clouds to be his chariot. Listen, he walks, parapateo, upon the wings of the wind and a moss. That's the Greek version of Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3. And if the tie-in to Psalm 104 is not strong enough for you, then by all means, let's pick up in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 14. Look at it, please. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, He, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. Now when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They literally have no idea what's going on. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be... Be afraid. It is I, Jesus says in the Greek, ego emi. It turns out that this is the Greek translation of I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the translation of the Hebrew Yahweh into the Greek language. And just in case you're still not convinced, may I remind you that when Jesus said, before Abraham was ego a me, to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 58, they knew exactly what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him for what? Blasphemy. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. The second point I want to make here before we start applying this text. The second point is this. Jesus' disciples are beginning to understand. I want you to see a very interesting progression here in Matthew's gospel account. Matthew records for us two times that Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. The first time is in chapter 8, and the second time is here in chapter 14. Now, in Matthew chapter 8, they're out in a boat, and Jesus is sleeping. 
while they're in a great storm, the boat being covered with the waves. Matthew says, chapter 8, verse 24. And you remember, the disciples come to him. They wake him up saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Jesus chastises them for their fear, for their cowardice, and then rebukes the wind and the waves. And Matthew says, It became perfectly calm. And this is the key. Please listen. Matthew chapter 8. The disciples marvel at this. And at that time they say, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew chapter 8 verse 27. Now, compare that to their response in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. Let's look at it together. Matthew 14, verse 28. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come and get out of the boat. And and getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, Peter became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew chapter 2. The pagan Persian kings from the east, we call them the Magi, came to worship the king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 8, an unclean leper falls down and worships Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Matthew chapter 9, a Jewish synagogue official worships Jesus saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And finally, finally, in Matthew chapter 14, the daily disciples of Jesus fall down and worship at his feet and declare, truly, you are the son of God it's about time and of course at the end of Matthew chapter 14 we read this about the crowds beginning at verse 34 and when they Jesus and his disciples had crossed over they came to land at Gennesaret this is back back on the west side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum Jesus' hometown And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were cured. Let's spend the last few minutes here this morning at the end for some points of application. What does all this mean for us? There are three things I want all of us to see here this morning. First, I want us all to believe that and be satisfied with what Jesus, our Savior and King, provides. Let me say that again. I want us all to believe that and be satisfied with what Jesus, our Savior and King, provides. Isn't it true that so often with our minds we believe that Jesus, the one who has saved us, is Yahweh Ra'ah. We say that God will provide, but then we don't act like it. We get anxious and angry 
And we begin to doubt whether or not Jesus really sees us, whether he really knows our need. We doubt his immeasurable love for us. Maybe it's just me, and so I'm going to preach to myself. You guys hang on a second, okay? Brothers and sisters, I'm not just talking about money. Are there not plenty of other things that we need besides money? I mean, some days, isn't it true that we just need faith enough to make it through the morning? Courage enough to get through a difficult conversation with your spouse. Time enough to get something done that was due yesterday. How about a simple sense of just knowing that you're loved and appreciated? Beloved, although, yes, God often uses means to provide us these things, at the root of it all is Jesus. His cross, where His love for us is most clearly manifest. He is the provider. God knows what we need before we even ask Him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, And beloved, your cup overflows. Psalm 23, verse 5. Do you believe this? Are you satisfied with what you have? Just this week, Jen and I were blessed again to be doing some premarital counseling with a young couple. And these are blessed times for sure. We were able to reflect on our lean early years and bear testimony to the fact that there were days, many days, when we didn't know how we were going to make it on one income while putting our kids through Christian school right here in this very building. But it's a blessed time when we can look back at all those days and realize that God God was providing what we needed and often just in time. Calling us to believe that He is Yahweh Ra'ah, the one who provides. And so many of you have similar stories because I have heard them. The Apostle Paul writes this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How, listen, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? And let's dig a little deeper on this whole God will provide thing, shall we? How about that ailment from which you are suffering? How about that annoying husband that you have that's always getting on your last good nerve? How about your job or your boss? Or even your lack thereof at this time? Is Jesus not the Lord over all these things? And even if you say, yes, of course, Jesus is Lord over these things, would you then also say something like, but, but Jesus, the Lord, He has provided to me something other than a good gift. You see what I'm getting at here? 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's James chapter 1, verse 17. The problem is not in what you've been given. The problem is not in what I've been given. The problem is that we, in our silly, stupid, sinful weakness, we don't see, we don't acknowledge that everything we've been given is a gift. A gift from a God, Savior, and a King who loves us and who knows what He's going to do. He knows exactly what we need. Brothers and sisters, should we not learn from Israel? We should. That's literally what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 10. Should we not learn from Israel, listen, who spit the very bread from heaven out of their mouths in the wilderness? May ginomai, Paul would say, were he here. May it never be. Beloved, listen, if you have been given something, anything in this life, it is a good thing, it is a perfect gift given to you by your God. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And if you don't see it this way, if you don't see everything that you have as a good thing, as a perfect gift, then listen please, the problem is not with the thing. It's not with the gift. The problem is with you. The problem is with me. Do you believe this? Are you satisfied with what you have? Our cup overflows. If we will only see it. Give me a moment for some verse. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. T'was He who taught me thus to pray. And He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once He'd answer my request. And by His love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest instead of this. He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue this worm to death tis in this way the Lord replied I answer prayer for grace and faith these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free listen and break the schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me John Newton, 1779. 
Second, yes, we should reflect for a moment on the fact that Peter did, in fact, get out of the boat when Jesus called him to come. Even before that, brothers and sisters, what kind of brash faith does it take to say to this ghost, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water? Is this the kind of brash faith that we here at Abiding Grace Church have? I think it's the kind of faith we want. I mean, wouldn't we like to have a testimony in our community, in our families, that sometimes we just do crazy stuff? Little old you, little old me, little old Abiding Grace Church, doing crazy stuff to build God's kingdom for the glory of Christ. And when someone comes along and says, what did you do that for? How did you pull that off? We say, because Jesus told us to do it. And what he commands, he provides for. Back to point number one. And of course, when Peter becomes frightened, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Beloved, taking your eyes off Jesus is never a good idea. All of this is true. But let me just say again, the point of this story of Jesus walking on the water is Jesus. Anytime the topic of Jesus walks on the water focuses on Peter and on his faith or his lack thereof. Anytime the topic of Jesus walks on the water focuses on Peter and not on Jesus, then that discussion, that teaching, that sermon, listen, makes the very same mistake that Peter himself made. Do you see that? That discussion, that teaching, that sermon misses the point of Matthew's recording of this event because that discussion, that teaching, that sermon itself takes its eyes off of Jesus. So of course we exhort one another to fix our eyes on Jesus day by day. Nothing goes well when we lose the sight of our Lord. But let's also make sure that when we read this text, we are doing the same thing. We, with Jesus, are on our way to the cross and to the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we must stay the course. Finally, for this morning... We fix our eyes on Jesus because truly He is the Son of God. And He commands, He demands, and He is worthy of our devotion and our worship. He, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is doing these things that we read about in the Gospel according to Matthew because his intent, listen, his intent is to make it absolutely clear to all those with eyes to see that he is the divine, human, Savior, and King of the world. In his first advent, which is coming as we celebrate it, The divine son took on human flesh and he walked this stinky, smelly earth for three years, multiplying loaves, multiplying fish, walking on the water and going all the way to Calvary to give his life as a substitute for sinners like you and me. And by simple faith and trust in him and what he has done, you can have all your sins washed Clean, And you can have a perfect righteousness credited to your account, a righteousness that you don't have in yourself, but a righteousness that you will need to stand before His great white throne on the last day when He comes again. 
No one will be able to stand without it. And it's offered to you today, not by me, not by me, but in the gospel, in the good news that is now in your ears. This is an offer that comes to all of us, all the world, by the Savior and the King and the Son of God Himself, and there is no other name in heaven or on the earth by which any sinner can be saved. Amen? Isn't this why you're here? Truly, Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He is alive and well this very moment. He is seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And in this moment, He offers any and all, like those disciples two millennia ago, He offers provision of Himself for salvation to the uttermost. And in this moment, He commands any and all like he did to Peter on the Sea of Galilee, he commands any and all to come to him. God in human flesh, doing what only he can do, for you cannot save yourself. All glory and honor and power and dominion be to Christ Jesus today and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.